As we mentioned yesterday, the Larry Householder trial began in earnest with opening statements, and we'll be talking about that a good bit on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and Layla Tassi, and each of you will have a piece of this one because it's so big. Let's begin. The trial did begin, as we said, with opening statements. For one, Householder plans to testify, which they always say at the beginning, but, you know, later on, the lawyers usually prevail and tell them, don't do it because the prosecutors will tell you you're alive. Let's start with all the talk about Householder and First Energy bigwigs at a fancy restaurant in Washington, D.C. The prosecution referred to it repeatedly. Layla, what happened there? Yeah, it sounds like lead federal prosecutor Emily Gladfelter did a really good job of taking jurors back to the very beginning and setting the scene, describing for them this decadent trip to Washington, D.C. in January 2017, during which Householder flew on First Energy's private jet with then-CEO Chuck Jones and, and Cleveland businessman Tony George was there to attend Donald Trump's inauguration. And while in D.C., they were joined at what they kept referring to as a fancy steakhouse by other key players in the case, top First Energy executive Mike Dowling and and Jeff Longstreth, who at the time was Householder's political manager and his right-hand man. So at this fancy steakhouse, prosecutors say they got to cooking up the scheme to use tens of millions of First Energy dollars to fuel Householder's political machine. They discussed Householder's plan to become speaker and what his financial needs were and what First Energy needed out of the deal. And the First Energy executive said they knew the speaker at the time had no interest in helping them legislatively, so they needed Householder to become speaker, and they were willing to pay for it. But they made it clear that the money needed to be non-disclosable. And they met at several other fancy restaurants in D.C., according to the prosecutors, to hash out the plan before Householder flew back to Ohio again on the corporate jet with First Energy executives. And then weeks later, Longstreth filed paperwork to form Generation Now, which is that dark money political nonprofit that the prosecutors say was used to secretly funnel millions of dollars from First Energy to pay for the political operation and that nonprofit helped Householder get elected as House Speaker, helped push for HB6, defended it against a re- repeal effort, and then even helped Householder push for a ballot issue that would have changed term limits so he could remain in his position for 16 years. So it was a pretty compelling, sounds like a pretty compelling opening from, from the prosecutors. And it was gross. I mean, this is everything voters don't want to hear about elected officials going on the corporate jet, which Mm -hmm. that's a terrible look to begin with. You know, first energy controlling the state (laughs) house. Let's go on our corporate jet. Woohoo! Drinks on us. Get to the expensive restaurant, hatch the sleazy plot to to undo what the citizens would not want. And it's just it's a horrible thing. We should mention, too, Tony George again comes up in this. He was there. The local guy who was trying to reduce council was trying to do first energy's bidding um, against Cleveland Public Power in Cleveland. He just keeps coming up in this thing. He was central to these meetings. Yeah, but so far, he sounds like he's getting through it without anything sticking to him. So, Was he on the still... witness list? Might he I don't testify? know. That's a really good question. Well, you would, would think if he was present for all of this fancy, fancy, you know, lavish dinners. 
Shouldn't we just pass a law saying if you're an elected official, you can't fly on anybody's corporate private jet? I mean, wouldn't that just be a smart thing? Don't it should ever just do be it. common sense. I mean, there you can't really. T- I can't think of a you know a corruption case that doesn't involve corporate jets and fancy meals. I mean that that setting the scene that way, I think, colors it um, colors it pretty bad. Nothing good ever results right. from an elected official getting on to a private corporate jet. It's almost exactly. automatically bad things are happening here. Talk about being in the room where it happened. This is in the jet where it happened. <laughs> it's today in Ohio. I'm going to give up my Jersey roots here. We had a Brendan Byrne moment in the trial involving Dave Yost. Brendan Byrne was the New Jersey governor in the 1970s when casino gambling arrived in Atlantic City. And federal investigators were working a wiretap back then, and they heard mobsters call Byrne the man who couldn't be bought. This wasn't quite that level, but Dave Yost had a moment where he comes out looking okay. Laura, what was it? Yeah, he does. So he didn't give in to this. Prosecutors say that Matt Borges got involved in the scheme because of his relationship with Dave Yost. He hoped that Yost would reject any language for a referendum on the first energy nuclear bailout. That did not work. This is kind of my understanding is act two of the corruption plot. First, they have to get HB6 passed. They've got to get the billion dollar nuclear bailout for for First Energy through the legislature, but then they had to deal with the public opinion, right? They had to fight back and defend it against citizens who saw this bailout as a bad idea. So Emily Glatfelter, she's the lead prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office, she described this in her opening statements. So that Matt Borges was meant to play in the scheme, and obviously biggest political corruption scandal in Ohio history, they both called him, both Householder and Borges called Yost while the language was pending in his office saying, you should deny this. And he's trying to argue that HB6 wasn't subject to a referendum, but Yost rejected that advice. Well, again, sleazy, right? Because Borges is a close friend of Yost. So let's get him on our payroll and use his friendship to undo the public good. Sleazy, sleazy, sleazy. And look, I credit Dave Yost. He, He did the right thing, even though his friend was begging him to do something different. And now we have a good idea why Dave Yost is on the witness list. That makes sense now, right? I'm sorry. I was just going to say that that makes sense. So, but I, I did not expect this from, from him. Well, I, I look, I haven't ever seen a sign that Dave Yost would do anything sleazy. He, no, he had, he had to rule on this question. He ruled on the rule of law. He did the right thing in spite of the pressure. It's probably not going to be easy for him to testify against somebody that's described as his good friend, but you know, we'll count on him to tell the truth. Next, before householders' defense attorneys even made their opening statement, the judge in the case let them have it. Lisa, it almost sounds like they're misbehaving frat boys. What was the judge upset about? Yeah, federal judge Timothy Black wasn't having it from householders' of. Uh- attorneys. He was appalled by their behavior during the prosecutor's opening arguments yesterday. They were making faces. They were clicking their pens loudly. He said, come on, this is Bush League tactics. And he said, quote, if you guys can't behave yourself, I'm going to leave Mr. Householder at the table with one of his lawyers and leave the balance of you in the gallery. So that's good. He's setting the tone right out of the gate. So he's not going to brook any nonsense. I know, but what are, what kind of it's lawyers ridiculous. are these? One, how does clicking pens 
<laughs> what is the meaning of clicking pens? Is it just to distract the jurors and then making eyes? I would think the jurors would be turned off by that. I know if I was no. a juror, I'd be turned off by that. I mean, that's it, it's and it's kind of bush. It is. It's bush league. Tactics. It feels like middle school, right? Like if I roll my eyes hard enough, they're going to know that what they're saying is ridiculous. <laughs> Layla, you covered courts for a while. Did you ever see this clicking <laughs> pens tactic? No, and it's funny. I was just thinking that um, Stephen Bradley and Mark Marin, I have spent a lot of time watching them at, at trial because they were the uh, counsel for Yazid Issa. Do you remember him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, they they were very professional during that. I don't recall ever there being a situation where they had to be admonished by the judge for bad behavior or for trying to distract the jury or anything like that. So this might this might be their new their new approach. <laughs> or maybe they had pens with caps back then and they've moved on. <laughs> it's today in Ohio. The 2022 numbers are in for Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. Laura, has it reached its pre-pandemic passenger level yet? Not quite. We're still looking about 8.7 million passengers for the year, which is good. And that's up from last year, but it's down significantly from the more than 10 million who traveled through the facility the year before the pandemic. So they originally thought they were going to get to 9 million passengers this year. But remember all the airline problems, the capacity reductions, holiday travel woes, that caught under the final number. But the Hopkins is pretty pleased with it overall. I was surprised by the ratio that the different airlines had. The United is still the leader, mm -hmm. even though it has cut so far back. But right. then airlines like Southwest and Frontier are way down on the list. Yeah, United had 26% of all Cleveland passengers. And you got to think that, I know we're not doing a lot of business travel, but United is not the cheapest airline for most flights, although they do have direct flights to some places. American Airlines was second busiest with 18%, Delta was third, Frontier was fourth, Southwest, which is pretty much all I fly, was fifth, Spirit six, JetBlue 2%, and Alaska has 1%. Yeah, so I just, but I had thought when the airport came back, after United mm -hmm. cut back, that the bulk of the traffic now was, was families Leisure. and tourists. Yeah who are doing what you do. They're looking for cheap airlines, but evidently business travel still trumps tourism travel. I mean, a lot of people think about it. United was continental. People might still feel some kind of loyalty to that. And they do fly, like I, they actually fly direct to San Francisco. So there are some places they go that it's hard to get on any other airline. But you're right. I was surprised by that I mean, huge number compared to a lot of them. Uh, so nationwide, they're still, I mean, we're, we're still pretty normal. That's down 12% from the record level in 2019. So it's not like Cleveland is doing worse than most places. And Akron-Canton, they were down 34% from 2019 levels, but 29% over last year. So, or sorry, over 2021. They're making a comeback too. And they're predicting they will hit the 10 million number this year. Yes, yes. They think that'll be normal levels in 2023. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is Cleveland City Council fighting with the mayor's office over who controls spending of casino revenue the city gets? The city is set up so that council approves the overall budget and policies, so they're already in control of the money. The mayor then carries out their will. Layla, it seems like council is trying to set up slush funds again. Yeah, in, in, in my humble opinion, that is what this sounds like. And here, I know, right? Here's... 
Here's the full scope of what's what's going on. City Council and the administration divide millions of dollars in casino tax revenue with council getting 15% of the money and the city getting the other 85. And for council, that amounted to just under $2 million last year. And they divide that money evenly among council's 17 wards. But Councilman Richard Starr has proposed an ordinance that seeks to divide the casino tax revenue evenly between council and the administration from now on. That would give council an additional $5 million to spend as council members see fit. The argument is that their constituents are not being adequately served by the administration, and this money would be used to provide services that the administration is failing to provide. So during a council caucus on Monday, council members started to gripe with the city's finance chief, Ahmed Abanama, that the city is too slow to get money out the door once council approves spending on a certain project. And, and this is council's way of taking control of that. According to uh, Courtney Astolfi, our city hall reporter, she said tensions were really running high in the room. Abanama said this proposal would be fiscally irresponsible and he, he argued that giving council this additional share of casino money would mean siphoning money from other important services. He said the cost of providing services is rising, and only twice in 20 years has the city's annual revenues exceeded expenses. In the other 18 years, the city had to sell off buildings and stuff like that to balance the budget. So basically, he's saying every penny of those millions in casino tax revenue is important. And he also pointed to city accounting that shows that actually Council tends to drag its feet when it comes to spending their casino funds. He said that council had been sitting on about $6.6 million of the $16.8 million it had received since 2012. That's like 40%. And, you know, why would that be? Maybe to save up for a specific pet project, meanwhile holding that money kind of hostage. And Courtney right. said there was all kinds of rancor at the caucus table. Members were just refuting the numbers, accusing Abanama of dealing a low blow and putting this before the reporters. I mean, it just got really ugly. Well, but the council is way out of line on this. The slush fund movement started back when Mike White was mayor and they got a windfall from workers' comp and they passed a rule to give the money to each council person, which turned them into little fiefdoms. And it's not the way to do it. And then all the road paving money used to be divided evenly among the wards. And Frank Jackson as mayor and Kevin Kelly's council president ended that. It was like, we got to do where the needs are. We got to think of the city on the whole and stop treating this like 17 individual little villages. Council, to act like the, the, the city money is different than the council money is preposterous. If they have issues with programs, why aren't they giving examples? What isn't getting done that they think is too slow? Have hearings about that. They have that power and get it done. But giving each of them money, that no good comes of that. We've seen it with the county council. They have squandered yeah. money left and right. And we've held the city council up as an example of how to conduct business. We have. And now Blaine Griffin and company want to go the slush fund route. It's I mean, pathetic. yeah, I'll be honest with you. And I, I don't really see much of a difference between what city council is trying to do with this money and what county council has been doing with its ARPA discretionary funds. I mean, in both scenarios, we've got elected officials wanting to spend the money on pet projects in their ward or district. And that's a really slippery slope toward political patronage. 
And in city council's case, I mean, there's there's that added dimension in city council's case of, you know, because because council members are permitted to sit on their share of money for years and hoard it to save up for one giant pet project. You know, that starves the ward for years. It's you know, it takes money away from the the general fund. I mean, it's it's a terrible, terrible plan. And I'm surprised they don't they don't see what county council has been through in terms of public opinion on this. Well, the other thing is, there's no review. Basically, if they want to do something, you know, they'll say, well, the whole council votes on it. No, they don't, because no council person will vote against the fellow council person's project for fear of having votes against theirs. So it puts people in charge of spending millions of dollars. That's not the way government is set up. This is a complete and wholesale violation of what is supposed to happen in this city. They set the spending priorities. They set the policy. The mayor carries them out. If the mayor's not doing it, call him in. Make him answer questions. They have that power. But given these guys individual millions of dollars, that's crazy town. I couldn't believe And Mike Palencic saying the honeymoon is over. Yeah, like right. We gave Justin Bibb a pass for the first year. We didn't, we didn't watch him at all. Now we're going to watch him. It's just hokum. They're trying to get money in their pockets so they can go around and take care of people. Yeah, Palencic was the criticizing plan. the administration for poo-pooing this proposal while simultaneously pushing for wanting to set aside money to what's, you know, known as participatory budgeting. Yeah, we're going to get to that one. So but, you know, Polensic was like, you can't have it both ways. You know, that money could also could be used for general fund needs. And that, yeah, it led to him being like, the honeymoon's over. I mean, it just seems like yeah, the relationship we'll, is fraying between council and, and Bib. We'll get to that one in a moment. It's Today in Ohio. With Matt Dolan, an announced opponent, and taking no end of pot shots already, and incumbent Sherrod Brown, has Brown now taken an official step to show he plans to seek re-election as a U.S. senator from Ohio? Lisa, what's he up to? Brown has hired a campaign manager for 2024. Her name is Rachel Petrie. She was uh, a former communications aide back in his Senate office and was his media spokesperson for his 2018 campaign. Um, She was also the deputy campaign manager for U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock's Georgia re-election, which, as we all know, was a very hard-fought and very closely watched Senate race where Herschel Walker lost, thank goodness. Um, She's from eastern Ohio. She's a Miami University alumni. She, uh, as Brown said, she's a daughter of Eastern Ohio who understands the dignity of work and what it takes to win tough races. And this will be a tough race. I did not know this, but Brown is one of only three Democratic senators in Congress in states that Trump won in 2020. The other two are Joe Manchin in West Virginia and uh, Joe Tester in Montana. And as we all know, there's already a challenger two years out, Ohio Senator Matt Dolan of Chagrin Falls has challenged him, and the national GOP has wasted no time in getting their attack ads. They already have one running that says, retire or get fired. It's surprising how almost overnight with the Portman departure, Ohio Senate races have turned into two-year battles. I don't think Sherrod Brown was probably expecting this, that he'd have to ramp up almost two full years before election day but but he is because Matt Dolan hey he's been he's been firing off email after email taking shots at him 
Well, and I think we saw what happened in the Portman race that attracted millions and millions of dollars of money from out of state. And we can assume, you know, that the same thing's going to happen in this race. They they see a Republicans see a vulnerability here and they want to, you know, swoop in and get him out of Congress. All right. Well, we got to be talking about that race for the next two years. It's today in Ohio. Okay. Now, Layla, participatory budgeting. We've talked about how it's a good idea for getting people more involved in politics Mm -hmm. in a city with atrocious voter turnout. So this is Blockhead City Council Part 2. Why is City Council so dead set against a project, an inexpensive project, to bring people into the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for as a recap for listeners, participatory budgeting is, is the idea that you would carve out a set amount of money. And in Cleveland's case, we're talking about $510,000 of American Rescue Plan Act money and give it to residents to vote on how it should be spent. The group would for, they would form a 21 member resident steering committee and they hold an election where residents can cast votes online for their favorite project ideas and the winning ideas would be executed. And the point is that not only would residents play a bigger role in improving their community, but it could also inspire participation in the democratic process. People would, you know, perhaps more likely, you know, they'd be more likely to show up to vote on election day if they've been included in something like this, or maybe they'd even feel inspired to run for office themselves. Well, Justin Bibb loves this idea. He initially wanted to set aside $5 million for this concept. And and advocates wanted $31 million. But I think Bibb realized support for it was limited among council members. So he started small with his ask and he proposed it to city council. And it was scheduled for a floor vote last night. But when the proposal got to city council's finance committee yesterday, which is the last stop before full council approval, it hit a real snag. There was Plenty of support from various council members, mainly from the newest members of the body, some of whom campaigned on the virtues of bringing this idea to Cleveland. But there was a lot of opposition, too. And it became clear that this proposal would not have the votes it needed to pass last night. So they just decided to table it for now. Among those opposed was Council President Blaine Griffin. Reporter Lucas DiPrilli noted in his story that it's customary for the chair of the finance committee to add his or her name to the piece as a co-sponsor, but Blaine Griffin had not done that with this piece. And his argument is that voters are already participating in the civic process when they elect their council representatives. And he said, you know, if you're doing your job as a council person, you're talking to people every day and representing their interests. But he said he brought it out, brought this this proposal out for a committee hearing because he thinks public debate on such an initiative is healthy and he didn't want to deprive council of that. But it, it just didn't make it to the floor. Yeah. The, the pro- Look, he's right. We elect city council. They are the body that's supposed to set the budget. But Cleveland is broken. We don't have people turning out to vote. There is a just a disaffection of Clevelanders to the whole political process. They feel like they've been forgotten. They're making it clear every voting day. So why not? Do take a step, an inexpensive step that might just fire the imaginations and bring people out. I, I don't get it. I, I This city council, we held them up for Blaine Griffin's first year as president as a model for how to behave. And it's like, oh, we don't want to be held up that way. We want to act like children and be and be criticized again. I, I, this is dumb. They should automatically do this if it has any chance of working. If it doesn't work, they haven't spent that much money and they can they can abandon it. But what if it works? Right. I mean, and $510,000 is a pittance 
in the city budget to just experiment with that. And it's been proven in other communities. But, you know, I, I'm not at City Hall these days the way our reporters are, but I know how City Hall works. And I, I know a few of the personalities involved in this debate. And and what I see happening is this debate about participatory budgeting came on the heels of the other debate earlier in the day at the council caucus about splitting the casino tax revenue between council and the administration. And the finance director told council at that hearing that he thought giving a council a bigger share of that money would be an irresponsible move. And council members were so mad about that. And I think that that spilled over into this participatory budgeting hearing. I mean, even, you know, like I said, Polensic at the caucus connected the dots and basically said, you've got a lot of nerve asking us to set aside money for residents to spend while denying council the chance to decide how casino revenue should be spent. And you can't have it both ways. So but so, the, yeah. the fallacy there is council does determine how the casino money is spent. They pass the budget. The mayor proposes the budget. The council has full power to set it. So if council wants a bunch of projects done in the ward, they can do that in the budgeting process. It starts again February 1st. The mayor's got to deliver his budget in another, what, week and a half. Mm-hmm. And they have full authority to do that right there. This idea that each individual wants money to control themselves is where the sickness begins. And that's where corruption can arise. They can get their projects done. They could, as part of the budgeting process, set up a subcommittee to say, okay, let's get all the projects council people want. Let's review them and let's figure out a way to pay for them within this budget. That's the work they should be doing. Right. This but instead, they, they, want, they want their constituents to see them directly spending the dollars on things that will win them re-election. <laughs> they yeah. love to take credit for stuff that's, you know, right there. And, and doing it through the normal budgetary process or the legislative process is just too too far removed from, you know their election, re-election goals. <laughs> yeah, because they can't do backslapping and Right. They can't just, take direct is, credit for it. It's bad news. It's really bad news what's going on here. It's today in Ohio. We know what the big numbers are for the coming cut in SNAP benefits, what we used to call food stamps. But Lisa, what will this mean to individual families? Yeah, just to recap, we talked uh, last week on this podcast about how Cuyahoga County is losing $23 million a month in expanded COVID SNAP benefits uh, at the end of February. And that affects one in six Cuyahoga County residents, about 212,000 people. And food bank uh, advocates are saying this means a loss of about 50 four million meals. So uh, uh, Caitlin Durbin talked to several people who have been affected by this, who were taking expanded COVID benefits that they will now lose. One of them was a 64-year-old colon cancer patient, Carrie Trailer. She said that her monthly SNAP benefits will go from $250 to $58 a month. She says she'll probably have to go from three meals a day to two and make other cuts as well. She also talked to a 26-year-old Latasia. She lost her SNAP benefits when her pay got raised just a couple of dollars to $14 an hour. So that put her over the threshold for SNAP benefits. And she, it was kind of cute. She was kind of, you know, accepting of it. She says, well, you know, I'm going to have to eat less and I'm going to have to accept more dinner dates now. So she's trying to be, (laughs) she's trying to be pragmatic about it. But food bank and hunger advocates are preparing, but they say they are not going to be able to fully meet the need. Um, 
uh, chief programs officer for the for the food bank, Jessica Morgan, says SNAP provides nine times as many meals that all 199 U.S. food banks do combined. So they just can't make that up. And they're saying, unfortunately, food pantries, which are supposed to be an emergency thing, they're actually becoming the sole source of groceries for many families. I don't know what the answer is because this was never viewed as permanent. This extra benefit was added to help people cope with the pandemic. And so three years in, two and a half years in, it's not really in the budget to continue it forever. I I just wonder how the county and the city and others with some, some ARPA dollars might respond if the food bank predictions are true when they do get overrun. Well, and, and you know, uh, Jessica Morgan was saying even with money that they're expecting to come this summer for the Cleveland Food Bank, it's still not going to be enough. And, you know, this is a perfect storm because COVID, you know, the worst of it may be over, but then inflation has just kept rising since then. So it's it, people are in a sticky situation. Okay. And you really see it in the price of eggs. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked about the airlines, but we also have numbers for last year for hotel occupancy in Greater Cleveland. And if the airport traffic isn't back, it's a good bet that hotel stays are not either. Laura, what are these numbers? Well, we're doing okay. So hotels in Cleveland throughout Ohio are recovering at a rate slightly better than the national average, at least by one metric of occupancy. And that measures, you know, the percentage of hotel rooms that are full. It was 58% in the six-county greater Cleveland region last year. That's up from 52% in 2021. Still down from the 2019 pre-pandemic number. That was 61%. Uh we're doing very slightly better than a rest across Ohio, which was 58.2. We were 58.4. But downtown Cleveland, that's a sadder story. It's taking the longest time to recover because business travel has been slow. And downtown Cleveland occupancy was 57% last year, up 48% in 2021, down from 68% in 2019. Yeah, it all feels like it goes hand in hand. So maybe right. if the air traffic comes back stronger this year as predicted, the hotel stays will get there. Uh, I don't think anybody expected there'd be an overnight turnaround in any of this. No, from- Cincinnati and Columbus and Detroit are all actually doing a little bit better than us, not by a ton. The only three we're beating are St. Louis, Houston, and Minneapolis. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for a Tuesday. Thanks, Laura, Lisa, and Layla. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 